0: You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison. And this week, we're talking about something a little different than just fermented foods. We're talking about the microbiome research in general, and how to understand the health benefits or questions regarding the stories that come out in major publications. All this and more in episode 69.
1: Well, remember a few weeks ago when um, I think it was Memorial Day weekend when we were recording and talking about um, uh, losing starters and trying to make them maybe last a little longer than um, what they should. Do you remember talking about that? Yes. Okay. Well, that totally happened to me this week. I was cleaning out my refrigerator and you guys have seen the inside of my fridge. I mean, it's usually pretty packed and stuff gets lost in the back. Um, And as I was cleaning it out, I found um, my vealy culture, completely forgot about it, been busy doing other things and working on other projects and stuff. Um, And so I was was home by myself. My husband was gone. He was working late and um, opened up the container and, oh, my gosh, it smelled terrible. I was so embarrassed that that was even in my fridge. It was awful. So awful.
0: (laughs) That's very sad.
1: It was so sad, but luckily, um, I think I revived it. I haven't really, again, I, I, you know, I totally neglected, neglected it and now I'm still neglecting it. I, um, took some of the culture off of the top because I, I feel as if that was the really smelly part because once I skimmed off the top, um, I smelled it again. Um, and it smelled fine. Didn't really smell like anything. It smelled like yogurt. Um, and took some old milk that we had in our fridge and um, d- started the culture again. Um, haven't tasted... I think I was a little weirded out because it just smelled so bad that I haven't tasted the culture since I've remade it. Um, but I thought, I thought that that was like a perfect example of people forgetting things. And we had just talked about losing cultures. Um, so I thought it was... I just wanted to share that little tidbit that even... I mean, everyone, it happens to everyone.
0: And just to be clear, you had no intention of consuming the one that smelled bad. You were just using it to try and reculture with, correct?
1: Right. Yeah. I poured probably half of it down the drain because it, it was, I just knew just by smelling it that it probably was not something that I should be eating or sharing with people. Um, so I just sadly dumped it down the drain um, and I, Then used the the remainder, the other half that smelled okay. Um, And as a test, I used some sour milk that we were planning on keeping to make um, sourdough pancakes. And um, just kind of like cross my fingers and cross my eyes and hope that everything would turn out fine and it wouldn't be as you know. I'm all this is all just based off of the you know my smell test. If it smells good, it's probably fine to eat. If it doesn't smell good, don't eat it. Type of thing. and I you know I gave it a full twenty four hours I let it sit on the countertop and didn't touch it and um it it smells fine it smells like nothing at all, you know, just like normal how normal yogurt smells
0: these dairy cultures continue to amaze me over time as to how resilient many of them are again, these kind of heirloom yogurts, not the or dairy ferments, not the the isolated strains the direct set starter cultures, but the ones that have just been around for so long, it amazes me how they can look as if they could ferment no more, at least not ferment in a good way or a way that we'd want to eat. And then they come back. Um, And so I urge you, even if you don't get exactly something that like, if you try it or you smell it at some point before, before you've actually like, if it doesn't end up being what you would expect it to taste like or to smell like, Um, Try it again though, because I had somewhere I almost lost at one point where just doing multiple batches and I was just looking at consistency and texture at that point. I thought I'd lost that aspect of it, but just making a few batches made it so that it eventually just sprung back and was what I was expecting.
1: Yeah. And I think that's my plan. You know, I, I'm waiting to get a little, I mean, we go through milk pretty fast in our house. um, So I have to, I don't. I don't have to make a special trip to the store to buy an extra gallon of milk or extra milk to use, but, um, I have, I haven't had, it's sitting in the front of my fridge. I haven't had time to touch it since last week. Um, and my, my goal is to go through a few generations. So do this a few times, um, and maybe take a few tastes of it, um, just to kind of see if it's, if it's, you know, the right consistency, the right texture, the right taste, um, and, and and do what you, I mean, that's exactly what I was going to do, what you suggested.
0: It's one of those things that's a little difficult to know for sure. I mean, all of this stuff, especially for someone that maybe doesn't ferment a whole lot, like hearing the idea of like, I'm going to take something that smells rotten and I'm going to try and make something new with it and actually eat it eventually might sound kind of weird. And that's kind of just the something to get used to with fermentation, I think for beginners sometimes, but it's it's hard because it's hard to recommend like something like like dairy that can make a person very sick if it's contaminated it's it's kind of hard to say that like there there has to be a little bit of risk involved if a person's going to do that normal dairy fermentation the normal way of keeping a culture alive and not having any funky smells or anything like that like just following a nose is generally okay but once things go a little off there's a little bit more risk involved, but I don't think it's for me. It's worth the risk because the risk from all evidence that I found so far seems to be still very small. Um, if it if it smells good, now again there are plenty of examples of from uh, dairy, especially once you get into raw milks or whatnot, where people do get sick. But when we're talking about these these cultures and uh, the microbes in them are inherently protecting the milk to a large extent. So I'm willing to take that risk, but I wouldn't, I I guess as a disclaimer, if you're taking your milk like this, I would do it, but I can't recommend it um, in the sense of if it doesn't feel right, just don't do it.
1: Yeah, it just smelled oh, it was so awful. I it almost made me I'm I'm pretty good with really nasty smells, but this one just blew me out of the water how bad it was. It was a mixture of sour milk and like acetone and like gasoline um all mixed together and it was it was probably really concentrated like a like a bomb like went off just because of smells and aromas because it was in the back of my fridge and it was sealed. So when I opened it, I also took a really big whiff of it with my nose, which was probably not the it wasn't the smartest thing to do. I should have just opened it and used my hand to waft it in front of my face, but I didn't think it was going to be that bad. It was just, you know, a smelly gym bag like let's just stick your whole face in it and see what happens. But it was I mean, it was pretty gross. But with that – and I'm trying to be a little more careful about like what I'm eating and, um, and not trying to have a lot of strange foods right now um, just for um, health reasons and for um, what we're going to talk about in this article or this – in this podcast.
0: And that's – even be- right before we get to that, I was going to ask, did your husband smell this by chance? Was, was there anyone else other than you that smelled this?
1: No, it was just me. I, my dog may have smelled it, but it was just me by myself in the house.
0: <laughs> well, that's um, another thing. Don't, don't trust what your dog smells as being safe to eat because I know my dogs will <laughs> eat all kinds of weird stuff.
1: Yeah. My, our, dog's like, our, our dog is, loves stinky stuff. So he probably enjoyed the smell. But um, I I thought maybe about keeping it and having my husband smell it later when he got home from work. But that's just kind of a mean trick. Just to have a sign that says "Here, smell this," um, but he probably would have he probably would have made me um, throw the whole thing down the drain. So I have to I had to do a little uh, reconnaissance reconnaissance and just kind of keep it away from him and just not even tell him that it smelled that bad <laughs> because he's more of the type that's like if it I mean if it smells really bad we're not even going to eat it we're just going to throw it away.
0: Okay, so this has to stay on the on the down low until. Until you've recultured and made it good again, and then you can uh, let it, you should save some just in case. Because I'm just curious, because you know maybe your uh, your sniffer is a little off. Could it, it be? It could be.
1: It could be. It could be that my sniffer is off. Um, just just for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I had a cold last week too, so that could be it too. Um, but no, I haven't even. You know what? And now that I think about it, I ha- I didn't even tell my husband that it smelled that bad when I took it out of the fridge last week because um, we, just he was working late, a lot of late nights, and I was working during the day, so we didn't really get to see each other. And like, you know, little things like that don't really, um, you know, when you do see each other, that's not something that, com- that comes up in conversation. It's usually like, hey, we need to pay these bills or we need to do this thing or remember that. It's not, hey, remember that culture, that vealy culture in the back of the fridge? Yeah, I found it and it smelled awful. <laughs>
0: Huh. I, I, you mean not everyone talks about the funky smells they smell every day? First thing?
1: No, no, we, we usually don't. We save that for more like lunchtime. Yes.
0: Well then I was, you kind of hinted at it that we had an article we're going to talk about that may or may not be of more interest to you. Are you going to leave that part out or let people know that too, that connection?
1: No, I can, I can reveal my, my secret.
0: Your secret.
1: Um, <laughs> but it's not a secret. No one, I mean, no one can see me. Um, well, okay. But-
0: Let me say the uh, the name of the article that we're going to talk about and then see if people can guess before you even say. New York Times article that we're going to talk about a little bit today, uh, or at least one of the things we're going to talk about. Study sees bigger role for placenta in newborn's health. Can anyone guess than what your quote unquote secret is?
1: Dot, dot, dot. Well... I guess I'll reveal my secret, but um, my husband and I are expecting our first child in August. So this whole time since November, been sitting here quietly, not talking about baby stuff at all.
0: Which will be a fun episode to do. We need to do that. We need to um, hopefully get someone on the show, but uh, otherwise get some good research going for different aspects of how fermentation may or may not affect uh, pregnancy. And or um, babies in general, once our newborns. But this is a study that's not really fermentation. But you know, since it's big in your mind right now, I mean, it seems fitting because it's a it's microbiome research or potential microbiome research, and it's something that uh, is kind of cool. If it and it, I mean, it's really preliminary research, so we'll see. But what what is this article that you pointed? Put it out.
1: Yeah, so it was in the New York Times. Um, It was published on May twenty-first, so just a few weeks ago, I mean, two weeks ago. Um, And it again, like what you said, it is a very preliminary study um, where they're looking at placenta health and um, how that affects um, newborns' health. Because you hear a lot of things um, or you read a lot of things, whether you're pregnant or not. I don't know how. I mean, I didn't really know that much about. This kind of stuff until I was, I was pregnant or I am pregnant, but um, you know, there's a lot of things t- being talked about with your microbiome, with um, where babies inherit a lot of the gut or all of their gut bacteria because when they're in your womb, they don't have any of that, so you, they have to inherit it somehow, and a lot of it is thought or the old school of thought is that it's um, given to you by your mother when, um, you're in the birth canal. So you, that's when you get it all, all at that time. And it goes into your gut and, um, you build up these cultures that way. But this article is talking more about how your, the placenta when you're a baby in your mom's womb, um, how that may have more an effect of, um, plus, or of microbiome health, than um, the birth canal, because there's a lot of people who are giving birth um, via C-section, but their babies still have some sort of microbiome. So it's kind of like where school of thought of like where where are they getting all of these bacteria? I mean, they can't get it because they they should actually not have any. Um, the way I read the article,
0: and and that's the thing is that the 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 common um research evidence thus far has been that there is a difference um, in the two schools, be it a vaginal birth or a C-section. And this is like you said, talking about bacteria in the placenta once thought of as a sterile environment. So we have this environment that has some form of bacteria in it. Some of the different bacteria that they were, they were finding in it were in the phyla of firmicutes, acutes, proteobacteria, bacteria. I don't actually know that one. Uh and then uh, fusobacteria. Those were the main things that were found. And this was from a comparative study. Uh it was it was a collection of three hundred and twenty subjects with extensive clinical data, was established for comparative 16S ribosomal DNA-based and whole genome shotgun metagenomic studies. That's mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Quick, break it all down. What does it mean? Yeah.
1: So it sounds like um, what they did is they they acquired uh, 320 pl- placentas from mothers at birth. Um, I believe some of them had vaginal births; others had given had C-section births, um, and then measured the different types of bacteria that were found within that placenta. And the ribosomal um, DNA sequencing things that you had talked about, I think those are, those are just the methods on how they determined um, the types of bacteria that's in, in the placenta. Um, so it was more of just their, explaining their method.
0: Yeah, and, and the finding – just jumping to the, the conclusion, it, it was in regard to uh, the, the placenta microbiome was most similar to the human oral microbiome. And so that's where the article starts talking a little bit, bit more about uh, oral hygiene and um, some speculation in regard to um, how oral hygiene and gum disease and other effects may be linked – uh, like periodontal disease uh, and, and urinary infections. They were talking about being increased risk of premature birth and possibly linked to the placenta microbiome. And the thing that I was wondering was, this is again, very preliminary and there seemed to be a lot of leaps in the, um, I guess, assumptions. I couldn't get access to the article. I didn't have the access. It's um, I'll put a link for the uh, synopsis or or whatever that drawing a complete blank, but you know, the, the, the outline for the, the journal article. And then I started looking a little bit more. It didn't take very long to find that there were other people with that were questioning a little bit about how how much speculation was going on and not necessarily emphasizing the fact it was a uh, speculation. And Alison, I didn't get the chance to send this to you before we, we met up um, to talk, but um, th- like one of them that I found was from a, are you familiar with uh, Jonathan Eisen professor at UC Davis? Um, and he does stuff with microbes.
1: You know, I'm not familiar with him. At you all. should
0: watch the Ted talk of his meet your microbes. He talks about microbes and he wears microbes around his neck. Oh, um, wait,
1: maybe I have, maybe I didn't know that was his name, but I have, I think I have seen him. He's from just that one sentence of he wears microbes around his neck.
0: He, yes, you'll see in his Ted talk, he's wearing them. I think he's wearing patha uh, path, pathogen, uh, 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 pathogenic microbes, but he's talking about good and bad microbes in his talk. So I'll put a link to that Ted talk as well. And everyone should check that out. Um, it's a, it's. I think it's only like a 12 to 15-minute talk, so a little shorter than a lot of the TED Talks. But anyway, he has a blog, uh, Phylogenomics, and he has a award that he calls Overselling the Microbiome Award, and it's where he kind of looks at both studies and, more importantly, a lot of times science journalism and kind of critiques it because he argues there is – is a little too much overselling of this kind of stuff as into the power of it or speculating too much and not emphasizing the fact that speculation, um, uh, he flat out says it's misleading. And this was one of those articles that he did. I don't know. I think he gave the award to, I don't know exactly how his awards work. Um, I've read a few in the past, but, um, you know, the story came across to him on Twitter. If you go, I'll put the link for this blog post in there too. And, um, you know, talking about, um, one of one of the interesting things, if it's if it's connected with the bacteria in the mouth and oral health being a reason for um, you know the speculation that this would be a part of like why babies would be born premature or otherwise, then the question is, if it's about oral health, then how are humans even around now at all? Which again is a total assumption. It's just kind of more of a comical comment because uh, oral health hasn't really been that good for a very, very long time uh, throughout human history. So uh, for in most, in many places dependent on diet or otherwise. So how much connection that has may or may not have any, but it's article it's, it's, it's way longer than the actual article. And it's actually referencing more than just the New York times article. It's also in a few other publications. And that's why he brings these kind of things up and kind of, counters a lot of the arguments and also emphasizes that this is not new. It's not the only time that bacteria have been found in the placenta. And more importantly, it's not just because bacteria have been found. This research is too preliminary to define. If I understand correctly, too preliminary to define whether or not the it's active. um, If, if the DNA has been found or if they are living and active in there. Like as in, is it, is it an active microbiome or are these bacteria just kind of present and not really necessarily doing anything? The other assumption, which I was very quick to assume was that in regard to the bacteria being there, the bacteria were found in the placenta. The assumption was that this is also a way that the fetus is able to inherit some of the bacteria. But there, that is again, another assumption because we don't actually know if, the baby is getting any of that bacteria because there's a lot more research in uh, different camps of things. There's, there's plenty of research into different reasons as to why premature births, the evidence behind what brings on premature births. And then there's also evidence that there is a difference between a cesarean birth and a vaginal birth. So there are differences in the microbiome of an infant. And he links to a lot of research on that too. So how much is this study going to make a difference long-term? Who knows? Maybe maybe this will lead somewhere and be interesting. I don't think he is completely flat-out saying that this study isn't worth it. I think it's more so in regard to the journalism, uh, the, uh, the speculation, and uh, he specifically does uh, rip on – I don't know which comment, but one of the things from one of the journal uh, – writers as well. So it's, a it you know, it's, it's, it's very blunt in a lot of ways, but it's well worth reading and more so than all of that. And again, if you have anything to say about that, but I know since you didn't have time to read it, I figured I wouldn't uh, ask too much even that, but more so in the sense of this does bring up a good question about there is a lot more uh, it, it, the, the journalism around, well, science in general, but in the microbiome research and uh, fermented foods and otherwise, it's become a much more popular topic. And so we see a lot more articles about this and it's not always good science. At least it's not always reported in the best way. And so like, how are we even supposed to have any clue? I mean, it's always kind of that way with I think any kind of health related stuff it's always back and forth and all over the place um, and making assumptions about journal articles but like what is a person supposed to do if they're trying to understand about like like you you're pregnant maybe you want like is brushing your teeth going to make a huge difference or is like how do you go about like approaching these kind of things? do you really care too much or is it just interesting to see these articles but it doesn't really sway? your opinions because it's preliminary or d- like, do you kind of just go along with things because it doesn't seem like it hurt if, if it ends up being good.
1: Um, I usually just read these things and, um, you know, read what they have to say and kind of take it for not a grain of salt, but, um, it's not coming. I, you know, New York times, they do hire really great journalists to write about stuff and explain things that might be very difficult to explain to the general population. Um, but I would probably, you know, most of the time, if it's something I'm really interested in, um, they usually have a link to the actual abstract. Um, and if I have access to the article, I'll read the introduction um, and see where they're coming from and um, how they're doing their method and um, what kind of studies that have been done in the past and that sort of thing. So I probably would dive into it a little more. I wouldn't just take the article and be like, oh, well, this is how it is and this is what it's it can't be anything else than what they said that, you know, this is. This is true um, because you can't really do that with um, news articles um, because there's just so many details. It's hard to explain everything that you need to in one article. Um, there's always uh, pros and cons to everything and there's always um, controversy um, around certain ideas. Um, so it's more of just like – I mean I, I'll read it and maybe think about it and be like hmm, maybe I should prob- – I probably should brush my teeth. Um, you know, maybe three times a day instead of two times a day, or I should probably floss more. But it's not something that it's going to be the you know end all be all of me and how I live my life.
0: So then, what is someone that maybe doesn't have a science background like? That's where maybe it gets a little bit more difficult to try and make. Like it kind of sounds like you're saying, don't make any kind of decisions off of articles; just use it as a, a jumping off point. Which I I totally agree with. Like that's kind of how I kind of go about these things it's it's interesting to find articles and read news about this kind of stuff because it's one way to find out if i'm not actively subscribed to science publications but at the same time how does someone especially like something like this where multiple publications a big pub- publications new york times uh times and otherwise well it, it, how does someone figure that out? Like, how do they, how do they differentiate when something, again, I think the main thing is, is like, when is it speculation and when is it misleading? And I think sometimes we're even guilty of, of that, especially when we're just kind of conversing here about talking about something that seems really exciting and intriguing, but we may not have a full understanding, or I know most of the time, like not a full understanding of some of these, these new studies. And so I think it's important for even us to like be clear about like when we're totally speculating because it's just really cool to think and imagine that some of these things may or may not affect other things in fermentation of food and the microbiome in general. But I mean, I'm kind of just blabbering on, but like what is a a person supposed to do?
1: Um, I think it just takes a lot of – like you have to – just do your research um, and figure out what it what is true about the article and what is not. Hopefully, the person who wrote the article is not biased, um, and that's how news reporting, in my opinion, should be. It shouldn't be swayed to one side or the other because it seems – and and when it comes to science, it's a little different. When I think when you're reporting it, the, you don't give an opinion about science. You just report what the findings are. But um, – The thing about science, too, is, um, yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't brand new research. Um, I'm sure that they've been looking into this for a very long time and how fetal development is affected by uh, bacteria and where is all this bacteria coming from um, and how are we inheriting it and all of that kind of stuff. But I just um, think that sometimes the it's you can't just report about the same article or the same topic over and over again So. There's probably a lot of miscite or um, things that aren't said or looked into when uh, news reporters do these types of things. So um, does that make sense? Like it's just more of um, – it's not saying that the news reporter didn't do their job. It's just that there's so many facets and um, of research that it's hard to – it's hard to – explain them all because the other thing about research is when you're when you're doing it, um, you know, you do an experiment and then at the end of it you repeat it or you might change one variable to see if that changes the end result. But, I mean, it's just like constantly redoing the same experiment over and over and over again. And it's hard for probably um, a news reporter to report on the same thing over and over again like that.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I, I think that you pretty much nail it too with like curiosity. Like, that's what I think it's like, people need to remain curious and it's like, it's, it's one thing to be curious and uh, read popular news. um, And then it's another thing to jump farther and just dig a little deeper. If it's something that interests someone, I mean, I hear a bunch of different kinds of news that, isn't of interest for me to dive any deeper, but I kind of take it with a grain of salt and just, uh, that was interesting and I'll keep it in the back of my mind and maybe I'll make connections with it in the future. But for anything that I'm looking at, that's, that's something that I'm really interested in or something that I'm, I'm trying to make any kind of informed decision on, I will go with more than, than just the information that I can find in, in articles because again, I mean when we're talking about popular articles, it's a very broad general audience. So it's, I'm sure it's got to be tough to to write for for th- such a broad audience. Um, I think that like at least I think on on this podcast we're we're there are there's even a range of people that listen to the show. I mean, um, people are either like just starting out in fermentation and wondering what are we talking about half the time, and then there are other people that have probably been fermenting for a long time and that is uh that also makes it difficult i think in the sense of like what do we cover do we talk about basic stuff do we talk about you know more advanced things um i think that in general it's all just it's all just fascinating and i want to talk about whatever is interesting whatever is new whatever is traditional and kind of everything in between so for me like i want to talk about everything but then the things like this do remind me that it's important for us to probably I can think of a few times that we've talked about things in the past and we probably didn't uh, do enough uh, due diligence and could have gone even a little bit deeper um, into to covering the different things. So I think that even... You know, anything that we talk about too, it's like, it's kind of that same kind of thing. It's like, we'll kind of put you in the direction of where we found the information because we're just kind of having a conversation here. And then, and then from there, there's, there's plenty to figure out about it. Like if, if, if someone listening to the show is pregnant right now, like hopefully we'll have our pregnancy show where we talk about like how fermented foods, yes, we're going to get back to fermented foods next week and beyond, but I think the microbiomes very much so connected because it's another hot topic these days. And it's, it's oftentimes so interconnected with fermentation. But uh, but yeah, if someone's pregnant and wants to know more of what to do, like I know when my wife was pregnant, I mean, yeah, sure, we, we made more fermented foods than we would normally have made, more so because, well, it, the, the idea was it's probably not going to hurt anything. And if anything, it may help. But at the same time, I don't think there's enough evidence in either direction to say um, to say for certain. Maybe we damaged our kid, but he seems to be all right so far. Um, it's kind of just the well, risk I mean, of living.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that if that's how everyone should take all of these news articles um, or any sort of new research. I mean, there's anything, anything that um, is a new discovery that's being broadcasted to the public. It hasn't really been necessarily a new discovery. It takes years and years and years and years to get to the point where you – may have discovered something new. But, I mean, it's a lot of trial and error in research. And um, there's a lot of variables that you have to look at before you can definitively say, like, yes, this is the answer. Because science is so it could be anything and when you approach a scientific you know a scientific journal article or even a news article hopefully about science hopefully they kind of give you the a background information of what the thinking has been and what research has been done in the past because that gives you um, some sort of insight as to where where this idea came from and that it, it's not necessarily a, a quote unquote new idea it's just a thought that they've eventually um, have gotten to a point where they can, where they can confidently say, yes, this is true. This is not true. Um, but even in this placenta article, I mean, it's just a preliminary study and I'm, I, you know, that stuff's really interesting too, to know what is, what new types of research have, you know, is going on, um, in, in the science community. But, um, yeah, like, you know, pl- preliminary, pl- preliminary research. You can't really take that for like the set all be all for everything. It's not, they haven't proven anything. It's brand new research or new, newer research that's been based off of stuff that's been, that they've been researching from the past. So maybe they were looking more at, um, vaginal births in the microbiome of that. And then that led them to think of the placenta as maybe a, a place that has some type of microbiome that could be beneficial to babies. Or, I mean, who knows where their train of thought had led them to this quote-unquote discovery.
0: Yeah, and all of these things that we're kind of bringing up now too, just coming back around to fermented foods and, and beverages. This is a lot of the reason why, like for the most part, I don't focus too much on the health aspects of fermented foods, whereas I know a lot of people come into fermented foods because of health, because there are at least anecdotally things that are happening. And, you know, there is some research Again, a lot of it's preliminary research as to different links, be it with fermentation and the gut microbiota and autism or other other health issues or, or otherwise. I mean, there there are plenty of things that fermentation or certain fermented products or probiotics may or may not have an effect on, but that's where it gets kinda confusing because There's stuff in either direction. And a lot of the stuff that a person will find on the internet is very anecdotal and not even coming from a main source like the New York times or otherwise, you know, and, and, and we can see that there's, there's issue with, with anywhere on the internet that a person's getting their information from. And so I like to focus on the science aspect of fermentation, but more so on the, just like, what are these microbes doing? Like, what do we understand about them? And I think that we still don't know very much about these teeny tiny little things. We know a lot. I'm not saying anything about uh, micro research not existing, but I'm just like, we haven't known about these things for very long and they've been around longer than, than humans and all other things. So I'm fascinated by the, the The workings of how these microbes are doing the things they're doing, and less so with how they're affecting us, but some of this stuff is kind of cool, like those poop transplants I mean come on, I can't help but talk about that even if it is a little sensational and and um and but it seems to be there's evidence that it's it's doing something, so it's still interesting to talk about. but when it comes to food it's it's definitely all about the it's about the taste, the experience, and just the deliciousness.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you and I, it is ferment, fermented foods is totally it totally correlates um to our bodies and I mean there's been research done about that and we've talked about it briefly um in you know some episodes ago but um you know we'll have to do an a, a podcast about how to handle scientific research and how to um just like um you said um, um. Oh, the professor Jonathan S. Eisen. I'm sorry. I would have to. I haven't
0: listened. Um, Eisen. Eisen. It's yeah, a, just maybe.
1: like Yeah, just like how um Jonathan Eisen. I mean, he does a really great. From what I understand, it sounds like he does a really great job of not necessarily bashing what people say, but kind of bringing to light, like yes, this is true, this is not true, you know, it's um, not necessarily his opinions, it's a scientific fact on certain things, but it's nice to get that counter-judgment um, to kind of bring everyone back to Earth about what is actually happening and um, that sort of thing. But and anyway, um, you know, I digress and talk about uh, the placenta research again, but it is it is, I think personally related to um fermented foods that we eat and um, reculturing our guts and that sort of thing. Just what the same way that when you take antibiotics, you have to kind of start all over again and get all of those microbes back into your belly.
0: Yeah. And there there is research out there about that kind of stuff and it's, it's worth looking at and then it's just worth uh, picking it apart and seeing what's speculation, what's reality and uh, what we still need to figure out. And there's plenty in all of those, those areas. And so, yeah, I think a episode just talking about uh, focusing maybe more on fermentation and fermented foods and health. And one of the, just as a, like a, the little like suggestion or whatnot that I, I kind of always, when there is something that new that I'm taking in, I'll search with like keywords, like, um, like counter argument or s- skepticism along with the keywords of whatever it is that is I'm talking about. And generally if there seems to be anything strong in either direction, um, it doesn't mean that the, the, the skeptical things or even that this uh, phylogenomics blog has all of the answers. And I think more so than anything, it's just about, information, passing on more information. And so the more information I can find and not always in the camp of those that are promoting a certain thing, be it just sharing because it's interesting news and people will like it or otherwise. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, a lot of skepticism stuff can start to almost, I mean, it's just blunt. It's just not like people that are kind of picking things apart. It's very critical, but it's not in the sense of like really attacking people it's more so like let's let's have a discussion about this and see where things go so i think yeah i I definitely agree we should do one on on fermented foods and uh the science behind them especially on the 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 health aspect of things because that's that's always controversial
1: yeah i think that that's a great idea and I, i i think we've talked about having an episode uh devoted to that um and I think it's a good topic to reach, especially for people who are novice fermenters or um, home fermenters. Um, I mean, that's not, um, you know, they they may not do fermentation at, for their day job. So it's always nice to, I mean, I always want to, if I'm doing a, a new hobby or something, I always want to know how, um, if I'm doing it right, if I'm not, and just learning more about the background to how, on how to make myself better and knowledgeable about, um, whatever it is I'm doing, whatever the hobby may be.
0: Yeah. And these things get tough to uh, like, I mean, we're pretty much done beating this, but just a, a little bit more in the sense of like fermented foods. I mean, it does get tough. Like it's in the sense of these are traditional foods for the most part. Sometimes there's an experimentation changing things up and making it different, but these are traditional foods and you know, there's that, I don't know what kind of fallacy it'd be exactly, but I mean the idea of looking at, Well, it's something that people have done for a very long time, so it must be okay, but that is a slippery slope too, and sometimes that doesn't always pan out as being a reality. It just happens to be just because people survived doesn't mean that it's necessarily healthy or good, but – at the same time as some of these aspects are specifically related to the fact that we don't have these kind of things in our lives, the way that people did traditionally. And how is that affecting either positively or negatively? There's, there are just plenty of different aspects to look at. And I don't think that we have all the answers. So fascinating stuff to consider. And um, pretty much we have no answers to end with today either, but uh, get out there and look at these things. At least look at, both of the articles, I think look at uh, we'll link to a few. If you have some kind of uh, science access or whatnot to any of this, like a uh, science mag or otherwise read the actual article, see how much it connects. Um, and uh, do you have anything, any, anything to wrap up? Are you fermenting anything these days besides you um, saving besides, your Vili?
1: Besides trying to save my Vili, um, I started some kombucha yesterday and it hasn't really gone started um, to brew. So I'm hoping it'll start in the next few days. Um, I think, um, it's been kind of cold in our house for the past few days. So I think that might have something to do with it, but
0: okay. California, how, what, what is cold?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean like today it was like in, in the, um, sixties.
0: Okay. I mean mean, for this time of year that I'll give you that. It's
1: not, it's not that nice. I mean, it's, it's, this is usually how it is in June. It's like in the sixties and, um, uh, we don't have, I mean, it's just that whatever the temperature is outside is the same inside our house. We don't have, um, any AC. Um, so it is what it is. So I think it's just kind of like slowly going and, um, I just got a new SCOBY. So it might just be like new environment and just getting, um, the, the bacteria and yeast and stuff acclimating itself to, cause it's, it's it's new. So that's about it in my life, in my fermented world.
0: Yeah. Well, that actually makes me think of, and it's way off in the distance, but it's something people should think about. If you're in the, uh, Wisconsin area or want to, to make a trip out this way in, uh, Reedsburg, there's a fermentation fest in October. Um, and it's been going on for quite a few years. Um, large fermentation farming and art festival. And, uh, the, I'll, I'll be teaching a kombucha class there along with a couple others. So I'll talk more about that in the future, but, uh, Mark your calendars if you, if you have it available, definitely be at the Reedsburg fermentation fest. But then again, if people are into fermentation and they're close enough to travel, they probably already know about it. So people are probably already have, have their calendars marked, but get them marked in case you're forgetting because it still ways off, but it's never too early to block things because, you know, like a couple of years ago, I wasn't able to go because, um, our, our child was born like the week before. So that didn't quite work out. So, um, and that was the year that, uh, Santa cats was there, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely worth going to. And, um, I have, I have more fermentation workshops coming up, um, soon that I'll talk about as well.
1: Yeah. Keep us posted on all that stuff. Um, I unfortunately don't have much going on in my life. Um, I've pretty much blocked myself out for, um, some stuff in the next few months. Uh, but if I have anything going on or if I know of anything that's happening in uh, California or on the West coast, I'll be sure to update everyone.
0: Yeah, well, which which does bring me, remind me, uh, farm to fermentation. I can't exactly remember it off the top of my head. I'll try and put a link for that, too. That is actually coming up, uh, well, I guess, didn't we talk? It's It's, it's not close to you, but it's in California.
1: Yeah, I think you said it's in uh, Santa Rosa or Northern California. Yeah. But it's in August. Um, Unfortunately, I think I'll be busy in August, so um, I won't be able to make it, but maybe next year.
0: You'll be busy experimenting on your child to see what kind of things you can start introducing for fermentation, either through your body into the infant or otherwise.
1: Yeah, I that'll be very, very interesting. A new
0: specimen to experiment with.
1: See, I can start my own my own cluster of research experiments and report back, and maybe I'll get in the New York Times.
0: Exactly. Yeah, my kid's given up on fermentation at this point. Like, there's, I mean, besides all kinds of fermented dairy, he's okay with that, except for cheese. He won't even do cheese right now. But yeah, he was eating like kimchi and uh, and and uh, like dilly beans and all kinds of sauerkraut, all kinds of fermented things right now. He won't even like do any kind of like mixed stir or rice or anything where a lot of that stuff would get mixed in. Like he's just, he's in a picky stage. So besides uh, fermented dairy, I mean, I I'm getting kind of worried here. I mean, he's almost two and he's not eating any fermented foods anymore. Like, I mean, how, how oh, am I going to no. feed all this stuff to? That's pretty much oh. what it comes down.
1: Oh man. I bet it's just a phase. He'll probably grow out of it and forget because it's, I mean, I'm sure that uh, there's probably a study that happened or you can maybe do your own study. Um, with uh, kids are just picky eaters. I don't know what age they start getting to be picky. Because I, I mean, I don't know. I have a niece that um, is very. She's very picky eater. But she wasn't like that when she was younger. She kind of ate whatever was put in front of her. So I don't know at what point like your taste buds develop enough that you're like, ooh, that does not taste like how I remember it. Versus. <laughs> That is okay, and I'll try that or I'll eat that.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I wonder if I'm trying to remember back. I did do like years ago, I I looked into more about taste buds and, you know, super tasters and all those kind of aspects. And um, about, I can't remember if we lose as we age, we lose some of that sensitivity to food. And that's why we generally can open up and acquire tastes for some otter flavors. Whereas as a child, we can taste a lot more, or if it's the other way around, or I can't remember any of those aspects of it, but that does remind me also something else we'll have to do in the future is follow up on a, uh, um, it's not a new study, but it's one that I'm just starting to look at more so. And, um, it's on a topic that we talked about before with the smell and aroma of funky things. Like why are we drawn to those kind of, uh, kind of things or why are some people, especially people that you know, like some funky ferments. So, uh, in the future, we'll, we'll, I'll send you a link for that too. Um, I won't put that in the show notes yet because I haven't had any time to look at it, but in the future, we should talk about that too. And really, really dive into the science behind the funk. Anyway, that should, that should get everyone peaked for the future that we're, we're, we're booked out for the whole summer. Now we got plenty to cover.
1: We're done.
0: That's it. <laughs> That's it. Well, you can show the, find the, the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 69. I've always had issues with the slash part, but, um, yes, at, uh, slash 69. And then you will find us on Twitter at firm up on Facebook at firm up and anywhere else at firm up, including Google plus and Pinterest until next time firm up.